Years ago, my sister Sean and I were in England where she'd been studying and we took a trip to Liverpool where their famous pro soccer club had a game against their rival Manchester City. And we knew we had no chance of getting tickets, but as Liverpool fans, we wanted to cheer for them right in their hometown, like to be there for the hype and the pageantry around Anfield Stadium, then go to a local pub, watch the game on TV with local fans. And it was amazing. So much energy in a beautiful stadium in the middle of an English neighborhood. Moments before the game started, we managed to get tickets from someone selling them on the street. We ran through the, the gate, we went through security, and we were hearing the sounds of the kickoff as the game started. But before we could run in, a security guard put a hand across my chest, barring us, and he said, you're not going in there like that. He was looking at our red jerseys we were wearing in support of Liverpool. And he said, these tickets are in the visitor's section, the section of the stadium reserved for Manchester City fans. He said, I'm serious, I can't let you go into the section looking like that, it's gonna be trouble. I mean, there are stories of violence being done to fans of opposing teams finding themselves in the wrong place. And so we had to zip up our coats to the necks, tuck them in, make sure no red was poking out. And we spent the entire game on our feet with the sea of Manchester City fans, a sea of light blue in the corner of the stadium with just a few thousand people surrounded by a larger sea of red throughout the rest of the stadium. When Liverpool scored, Shauna and I looked over at each other, but didn't even smile. While the City fans sang their songs, some of them pretty rough, mocking Liverpool and their fans, we had to just try to blend in. It was actually a bit intense. Because of the fact that some people in this space had chosen to cheer for the blue team and others the red team, there was a risk of bodily harm being done by people on the other side. It was a stark reminder of what can happen to someone who's not one of us. It was also a reminder that soccer fans are not the only people who behave like that. Now in this current series, which we're calling Reopening, we're talking about restriction and opportunity. We've experienced what, this, uh, what it's like this last year and a half to feel limited, to have restrictions that we've had to have imposed, and now we're anticipating the continual increase in our opportunities again as those external restrictions are lifted. But what are the ways that we're actually imposing spiritual restrictions on ourselves? In the first week, Mike talked to us about living freely by having open hearts to God. And in the second, Jeff encouraged us to live with open minds to God's truth. We've been talking about living lives of faith that are actually alive because we're open to growing and learning and God reveals more of God's self to us. But how does our posture towards others, our struggle to live with open arms, especially towards those we believe to be different from ourselves, put us in a lockdown of our own making and our ability to be open to God? Because the truth is that we're all tempted to act like those soccer fans in the ways that we treat others. Though we share a common humanity with every other person, we're tempted to divide ourselves along all kinds of lines, from our circumstances to our experiences, choices, and beliefs. We have a propensity for building barriers against people who are different, to treat them as others. In an influential book from the 70s called Orientalism, author Edward Said wrote about the fact that when we set up people who are different than ourselves as others, we set ourselves up as the experts about what these others are about. We set ourselves up as a judge of what other people are or aren't. And in doing so, we claim to know more about other people than the people know about themselves, that what they believe or how they behave is inferior and that they're inferior. According to the songs we heard at the game, Manchester City fans find Liverpool fans to be inherently less intelligent. And the more that we do this, the greater our sense of separateness, power, and even dominance over these other people is. And this is what we all tend to do, often in small ways, without even always overtly knowing we're doing it when it comes to people who are different than ourselves. For example, some of us in our Southridge community have experienced homelessness and some of us haven't. 
But if I've somehow never experienced homelessness for myself because of life circumstances that haven't led that way, I may be tempted to behave as though someone who is currently unhoused is different than or even inferior to myself. I may be tempted to categorize them with the narrative that they're in a situation that they probably deserve and I probably am in a situation that fits me and one that I've earned and deserved despite the fact that I have no idea what circumstances they've had to contend with that I never had to, that have resulted in a situation that I'm simply fortunate enough to have never had to experience for myself. I mean, a person isn't categorically homeless. It's something that our, some of our friends have experienced. But if I define them by that experience, I've now set them up as other, as different than myself, as less than myself. And this has the potential to give me a sense of power over this person by being able to ignore them and their circumstances and to put them in a box that doesn't do justice to them and what they're all about. And yet, as Edward Said wrote, I'm tempted to simply categorize people as others. And we do this in all sorts of ways. And what about someone who holds a political view that I see as ignorant, or someone who has a perspective or experience of gender or sexual orientation that's different than my own, or someone who comes to a different conclusion about what the Bible says? As Jeff said last week, often our tendency isn't to lean in to find out more. Instead, we tend to block ourselves off from people we see as different to take a position of power over that person by writing them off and simply viewing them as another so we can judge them and ignore them. Now, when Jesus was asked which command would really show that we understand how God invites us to live, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And yes, we refer to those words of Jesus a lot around here. Because when he said that these are the most important instructions and that everything else we read in the scriptures revolves around them, we don't want to stray too far before we come back to these words to try to understand them and live them out here in community. It's in this loving of others that we actually embody the love of God. Because open-heartedness toward God and open-mindedness toward what God is about flows out of our lives as open-armed relationships with people who are different than ourselves. I mean, sometimes we read this as Jesus saying, love God, and then as an outpouring of that, love other people. But what if he's actually saying that the way to love God is found in the way that we love other people, and specifically other people, people who we think are not like ourselves? And what if when he was asked, about the single most important command, the reason Jesus couldn't stop at love God and had to add love people is that to Jesus, these are two sides of the same coin, that you can't do one without the other. An open-armed relationship with people who are the most unlike us is what sparks my love for God, accelerates my growth in Christ, renews my mind, and builds the church. This is the key to it all. The entire Bible affirms what we find written in the very first chapter as the very first thing God says about people. God created humanity in God's own image. We've all made mistakes and have fallen short of God's perfection, but we're all equally made in God's image. And that being the case, when there are people who we find different than ourselves, what is, does that mean that they're less of an image bearer of God than we are? No, it means that they're a different facet of reflecting God. And what we see in the larger picture of the Bible is a story of God inviting all people to draw together, become an increasingly clearer picture of God through our diversity, our differences. I mean, like this mosaic of Jesus in the famous Hagia Sophia Church in Istanbul, it's only in bringing all the different broken pieces together that the image of Jesus becomes visible. In fact, the more different pieces you have, the more clearly you see Jesus. 
You see, we hear God's vision for the church numerous times in the Bible described as every nation, tribe, people, and language. The Apostle Paul speaks to this by saying, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. And the idea is the community that most resembles Jesus, God's vision for community, is one with people from all areas of differentiation. Not that our differences no longer exist, but that if we follow Jesus, we'll work to make those differences less relevant than the fact that we're meant to be a community together. These are qualities of God that I will only see in someone who is different than I am. A lot of people hearing this here in our Southridge community know exactly what this is like. You can picture that person in your life who is an other to you, who God is using to change your perspective, to teach you how to include. In this community, this lifestyle is not hypothetical. This is being lived out every single day right here in Niagara. Southridge, like, this is who we are. We're growing in this and becoming this community where no one should feel like an other. And in this season of reopening, it's worth naming it and asking ourselves, am I a part of this? And if not, what's holding me back? And did you ever see the movie, the Pixar movie, Inside Out? I mean, even if you don't have kids, it's worth watching. So Inside Out is based on the idea that the five core human emotions that we experience are anger, disgust, sadness, fear, and joy. When we, and when we encounter others, we experience a combination of these emotions. We often start with anger, especially when we're not face-to-face, -face, you know, like when we're online. You know, someone else, through their actions or words or their lifestyle or experiences, challenges my worldview and the worldview that generations of my family have held and that I sure intend to pass on to my children. And it makes me angry that someone would challenge that. And I may feel a sense of disgust, of not wanting to have to be in contact with people and thoughts that are foreign to me that don't resonate with my experience of the world. And if we look deeper, sometimes that disgust is actually directed at myself as a sense of guilt or shame. When I interact with people I've treated poorly or that I know that my people group, that my group has treated abusively. I mean, what have you been experiencing this summer with the ongoing uncovering of what the church has inflicted on indigenous peoples or through stories of our impact on LGBTQ plus people? I mean, sometimes we project the disgust that we feel over our own sin onto someone else, branding them as an even worse sinner than us so we can feel better about ourselves and it emerges as a feeling of disgust. And then there's sadness at the prospect of losing the comfort we experience by being surrounded by people who look and sound and think and act like us, who share our experiences and lessons, seasons in life and who just get us. It can make me second guess myself and my relationship with God when I'm confronted by the fact that there are people who are different than me. If there are different people and perspectives, then what if mine aren't quite right? Or what if I don't measure up to God and my beliefs, ethics and spirituality? And then this can uh, emerge as a feeling of sadness. And often pervading all of these is a sense of fear. We may fear that interacting with someone who's so different from us could be spiritually harmful to us, to our families, harmful to our views and beliefs and understandings, maybe even harmful to our eternities. If God's gonna be judging us for not judging the people we thought were wrong, we may push people away without realizing we're actually afraid of them. We're scared of different views and perspectives and people that challenge what we consider to be our fundamental beliefs. These negative emotions can cause us to behave defensively, but when we do, who are we defending? I mean, how pathetic do we really think God is if we imagine that God, our faith in God, needs us as defenders? If we find ourselves thinking that we need to save Jesus by separating ourselves from people who are different than us, then we've mixed something up, and our emotions may be dictating the terms to us. My wife Taryn often says to her oldest son Malachi, remember, your emotions are indicators, not dictators. 
Our emotions in regards to others shouldn't call the shots in how we behave towards them. They should just indicate that there is something there that we need to pay attention to. And what if God is actually asking you and me to read our emotions about other people and people groups, to lean into those relationships, because the ones that bring up emotions are the ones that may be the most different. And these emotions are God inviting us to let God do some work in us. I mean, the truth is that God is actually calling you and me to, to be defenders, not of God, but of others, as well as allies and friends. And that's how we best live out the commands that Jesus gives us. The people who are most different than ourselves are fellow image bearers of God. And how well will we know God if we refuse to accept the other pieces of the mosaic that make up the image of Jesus? And by contrast, what would we see in God in the faces of people who show us something different about God precisely through the ways that they're different than us? Now, we don't have to live in fear, sadness, disgust, or anger forever. There's another emotion, the main character in the movie, Inside Out, and that's joy. We can live in the joy that comes from relationships made whole. John Johnstone from our Mennonite Brethren denomination and the Stolo Nation out west has said to our Southridge community that even though there is fear, sadness, disgust, and anger in the relationship with Indigenous peoples to the church, and there's more to come when we're willing to start doing the hard relational work. John says that if he looks ahead to the paths where different people walk together rather than apart, there's joy that's just over the horizon. The joy of knowing God and ourselves more fully, of becoming more like Jesus, of finding commonality in other people that we once feared. Our self-imposed barriers and restrictions can come down. Our personal lockdowns that prevent us as individuals, families, and a community from fully loving God can open up. I mean, Southridge, now more than ever, we all need to keep each other accountable to this lifestyle in pursuit of God's joy that only comes when we love our most different, our most otherly neighbors with open arms. When Taryn and I lived in Botswana in Southern Africa, we used to spend time in a prison that wasn't too far from our house. Every once in a while, there'd be helicopters roving around overhead, and we knew that someone had actually escaped. And during the years that we were there, we connected with a man named Sydney. Sydney was ex-military from the Botswana Defense Force, tall, bald, often with a scowl. He was serving what at the time was a life sentence for multiple homicide. On the surface, we couldn't be more different, different races, ethnicities, language, languages, nat nationalities, socioeconomic standings, and seemingly values. But in spending years getting to know Sydney, Taryn and I saw the image of God that Sydney carries, which taught us things about God that we never could have understood ourselves in our very different experiences and circumstances. And Sydney was open. He showed us the incredibly hard work that goes into owning up to our past, facing consequences with joy no matter what they are, asking for forgiveness from both God and people and accepting God's grace. He used to tell us how important it is not to hide our failings, but instead to openly share them as widely as possible because the forgiveness and change that come from our worst mistakes are a testimony to the power and goodness of God. These are huge learnings. And on paper and before we knew him, Sydney was as much of an other to us as a person could be. But in the end, Sydney became a trusted friend and mentor who helped Taryn and I name our oldest son, Malachi, with an inspiring vision that he had. And Sydney was released after multiple decades in prison. And during his first week out, we were able to visit with him at our home. And he was able to actually meet Malachi, who hadn't ever been allowed to join us in the prison. And he had a chance to just, or we had a chance just to be together on more equal terms as friends. And Sydney now lives up in northern Botswana. He's involved in church leadership, is working as a farmer in his own plot of land. He's currently digging a super long trench from a local river to his land for irrigation. 
Not being able to see our friends for these past few years has been a loss for us, although not as much of a loss as it would have been if we had never gotten to know him, if Sydney's community and ours hadn't expanded to include each other. One of the main reasons that we as a family joined this church family when we came back to Canada was because these are the types of friendships that we at Southridge believe are fundamental to our faith community. Not hypothetically, but in real time, right here in Niagara, in our own neighborhoods, for every single one of us who consider Southridge home. In the exact same way as an unexpected friendship with Sydney proved to be transformative for us in Botswana, changing what our community looked like, we as a church are focused on doing just that. And I see this from you, from the people in this church who are living this out, who are people who have and haven't experienced homelessness and are getting together and learning from each other regularly who want to connect with people who read the Bible differently rather than just write them off, who are taking a journey to understand gender and sexual orientation in ways that you didn't grow up understanding alongside someone who experienced that differently than you, who consider migrant farm workers from the Caribbean not as strangers in your neighborhood, but as people who are among your very best friends. I mean, this church may never be a safe space for both Liverpool and Manchester City fans, but I think that we can become that for everyone else. And if you haven't heard this recently, then let me say this here. Leaning into these relationships is what God is calling us to. This is what we're all about. Let's celebrate these relationships and let's all spur each other on and invite each other to be this type of community. And if we're new here or newly inspired to live this lifestyle, then this is the time to step into this. As we reopen as a society and for our gatherings, instead of being a community that imagines people to be other than ourselves and closing ourselves off to them, let's open our hearts and our minds to God at a whole new level as we engage the people around us with open arms. Let's pray. God, we just pray that you would help us to be people who fight our tendency to create others in the people around us. God, we pray that you would help us to take ownership of this responsibility, of this opportunity, and this commandment. And God, we pray that you would help our church community to be transformed into the diverse and beautiful image of Jesus. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.